Okay, for our second, well, our message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Overcoming Fear. Mr. Steele. Thanks, Reg. I was missing all the other parts to that song, man. <laughs> I was remembering it back in my head. So, you know, in John, First uh, John, I should say, chapter 4, uh, verses 17 to 19, you find a scripture that is often used as a motivational scripture, or at least part of it. It's one of those ones that's on a little Christian calendar or a bookmark or all those, you know, devotional type, type things. Um, and it's kind of ironic to me because this scripture scares me to death. And, and yet it's used as one of these um, popular, encouraging, positive scriptures. And it should be. Maybe I'm just a little strange, but it, it, it scares me a little. It says, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been, uh, has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. And so the part that's often, I see often in, in different places, is perfect love casts out fear. We're like, yes! But is that what's happening? Because that's the scary part to me. Because when I look at that scripture, we can deconstruct it a little bit. Are we finding ourselves on the positive side of the scripture or the negative? Are we finding the perfect love working in our life and casting out fear? I don't have any fears. Do you have fears? Anybody have fears? There's two of us in this room that have fears. We need to go back to the commandments about lying. <laughs> we all have fears, right? And so we can look at this and say, well, this is scary because if we have fears, then we're not being made perfect in love, right? Isn't that the natural assessment of that? But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Shocker, Matt Steele is not perfect. Or you are not perfect shouldn't be a surprise to us, really, should it? I mean, we just talked about that a little bit in, in our Bible study. Hardly new information. Because prior to what John says here, perfect love casts out fear. That, that prior part seems to me that it's a, a process. It's something that's happening. And I, like I said, I don't know if you've looked at it this way, but I've always looked at it uh, in, in a way that, that this is not done in me or it's not working very well in me because I'm not supposed to have these fears. If Christ Jesus and the Father have moved in with me and we have that perfect love living within us, then how can we have fears? How can we have fears? So, I'm going to admit something. I have fear. And you guys just admitted it to me, didn't you? Whether you raised your hands or you just laughed, we all have fears. 
And I'm not talking about light fears. You know, light fears are like afraid of snakes. Or some people are really afraid of clowns. I'm not too sure why they're afraid of clowns. Spiders, bugs, beetles, scratchy noises on chalkboards. These are not the kinds of fears we're talking about, are they? They're talking, we're talking about real, overwhelming, deep fears, sometimes debilitating fears. Something else I'm going to admit to you. This week I had a fearful outburst, shall we call it. I had a fearful episode. Basically caused me to lose about three nights of sleep. Could not turn off the stupid brain that I have. Anybody experience that? Yeah. We've all experienced that. Fear is an evil predator that takes captive hope and decimates people. Isn't it? Fear is like this evil predator that cap captures our hope and decimates peace. But I suspect that we have all experienced that. All experienced those, those kinds of moments. We all have experienced what, and I really love this line and we all know it, President Franklin D. Roosevelt said, was nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzed. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes us. Some of our fears might be the same. You know, we all live in this world, and we may all have very similar challenges. And, and then some are very unique to us, and how we've lived our lives and the experience that we have in our life. But nonetheless, when we are filled with tears in the middle of the night, we all pray the same prayer. We're all praying about this fear that we are wrestling with. Just as David did. You know, remember that great warrior? Conquered armies, led the children of Israel to expand their territory, took over cities, took over Jerusalem and made it the capital of, of the nation of Israel. And it's, it's synonymous with Israel, isn't it? and the history of God's people. He did all of these things, and yet he had fear, wretched fear. In Psalm chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O oh, save me from, for your mercy's sake. For in, the, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of my enemies. I'm one of those enemies. Fear is exhausting. It makes us old. It makes us have no sleep, which makes us old. And it can almost certainly bring us down to the dust of the earth. I'll talk about it a little bit later, but fear 
can kill us. Fear can actually kill us. So during one of these sleepless nights this week, I read the Bible, I prayed, I brought my fears to the Lord, still not going to sleep. So I thought, well, I'll get up and I'll watch a movie. Stick something on, distract my brain, right? I mean, maybe you've done some of that, turn on the television, Darla's done that. Watch something to distract myself. So scrolling through the list of options, I came across a movie, I hadn't seen it before, I remember seeing it advertised. It was a sci-fi movie. Good for me. Sci-fi, absolutely. Totally go with that. I like sci-fi, and it was like kids rated, PG-13 or whatever it was. No bad stuff. Excellent. This should be a good choice to fall asleep to, right? Oh, I want to I watch the end of the movie, and I'm just falling asleep, and then I can go crawl into bed. This should be a good choice to fall asleep. The movie was called After Earth. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie with Will Smith. And uh, his son also was in it with him and played his son in the movie. A nice father-son movie. That's sci-fi. Set in space, no less. So that's even better. Wrong. You know what the movie is about? Fear. Overcoming fear. I didn't read the synopsis of what it's about, but it's basically about overcoming fear. The premise of the movie is that humans have moved off of Earth and found a new home in a distant planet, but then they are attacked by aliens who uh, created these horrifying creatures with legs and arms and, you know, claws and every possible way to kill a human being built in to this critter, but they don't really have eyes and they don't really have ears, they hunt the humans by the smell of fear. Which is it's pretty smart, really, because if you give a creature eyes and tell it to go hunt humans, well, humans can hide. If you give it ears, well, humans can be quiet. But can humans not fear? And it's, it's a pretty interesting exploration of fear exactly not what I really wanted at that moment. I wanted something to distract me, but it gave me a lesson. And now, unfortunately, sorry, it's giving you guys a lesson, right? Because there was a nugget of truth in here, and, and please don't run out and buy the movie by any means, because it wasn't a great movie. <laughs> it was okay, but it, it panned at the box office. And yeah, it, it wasn't the greatest. But there is a really interesting part, a line in the movie. Because humans were able to defeat their enemy by learning to control their fear. Who would like to know how to do that? Okay, for three easy payments of $19.95, I'll send you this, this package. No, so in the story, um, Will Smith's character, he's a general, he basically figures out in the midst of battle how to step out of his fear, set aside. And then when he does that, he realizes the, the creature can't see him anymore. He becomes invisible. They called it ghosting. In the movie. So now he's invisible to this enemy, and he can just walk up and stab it and kill it. And, and, and so then he started teaching the rest of the, the military how to do this, and they defeat the enemy. 
And for some strange reason, they kept one of these critters alive, but that's part of the rest of the story. So if you want to find out what that is, uh, you will have to rent the movie. But nonetheless, when his son asks him about how he had discovered the ability to, to not fear, to step out of this fearful state, and what happened to him, he says this. Brian's going to play the audio part of that. It's not real. The only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. That is so that's the aliens trying to disrupt the message. All right, so I'll, I'll read it again. Fear is not real, he says. The only place that fear can exist is on our thoughts of the future. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? We might regret things of the past. We might even regret or be worried about if those things coming forward, but ultimately we're afraid of the future. It's a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present or may not ever exist. That is near insanity. Now, do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. Fear is a choice. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But isn't that the truth? You know, so here I am. I'm, I'm trying to take my mind off of fears, and I end up watching this movie about fear. And then it's telling me, you're an idiot. You're choosing to do this to yourself. Right? My wife's laughing at me. She's had to deal with me for the last few days. I'm choosing to do this to myself. And, you know, now I'm running on no sleep. And I really didn't understand it at the time. But I understand it a little bit more now. And I know it's just a silly movie. But I think we can see some truth in this statement. Fear is not real. It's not tangible. Show me your fear. Well, you can't. You can describe it. But you can't pick it up, walk over to the garbage disposal, shove it in there, and flip the switch. Right? It is a creation of the mind. No matter how much we want to discard it like it's something physical, it's made in our mind. It's not real in that sense. An illness is real. Fear about the illness may not really be real in the sense of how we respond to it. When I started having a, a specific medical issue, the fear of what it could be was infinitely greater than the actual condition. And I think we all find that. We construct these monsters and then terrorize ourselves with these monsters of fear. Like he says, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. And that reminds me of one of my favorite Winston Churchill quotes, uh, he said, when I look back on all these worries, and he had one or two worries, right? He had a lot of worries. 
all of World War II worried. And then even his life before that. I mean, he was involved in World War I. Lots of worries. He says, when I look back on all these worries, I remember the story of the old man who said on his deathbed that he had a lot of trouble in his life, most of which never happened. Most of which never happened. So if we admit to ourselves, to one another, that we have this condition, that we have fear, we find ourselves in a very commonplace, a very human condition. And so what are we supposed to do with this understanding? To recognize that we all struggle with this and that we have a struggle with fear. Do we just have to deal with it? You know, suck it up, Matt. Take some pharmaceutical. Go sleep. Which is kind of a problem with me because pharmaceuticals don't react well. And maybe you have that same situation too. You know, I, I can't even take Benadryl without being a monster myself the next day. So how are we to deal with this? Do we have to suffer with fears? Or is there something that we can do? Can we actually do something about this? Something we must allow, allow for in our life, maybe promote or change in our hearts and minds. The answers to this are not easy. And I'm not going to say that I have all the answers today, but I think it's a start. We have a template to follow, and oddly enough, it's the template that James gives us about sin. And I think fears follow along with this same pattern that James told us. In James chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be, cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So this is the template for how we sin. I don't know if you've ever looked at it that way. But these are the steps that we follow that we fall down into sinning. Now it may not appear relevant for us, but I think fear follows a very similar pattern. Because unrelenting and consuming fear, Keep us up at night. Do actually lead us, oftentimes, to sin. So there's an interesting connection there. Because sometimes misguided efforts to try and self-medicate right, from our fears can lead us into sinful nature, sinful activity. So for example, applying alcohol or drugs to our fears drinking our fears, right? Applying those drugs to try and self-medicate from those very painful fears that we might have. Applying food, or the lack of it, can lead to destructive eating disorders. Gambling, leading to debt, financial ruin, financial destruction. Applying unhealthy sexual activity can lead to destructive outcomes. Fears can absolutely lead to sin. And as James has told us, that sin, when it's 
fully matured, right? That's an organism, a sickness growing within us, brings about our death. So what do we do? Well, if James has given us the model for sin, he's given us the model for fear. And it can be broken down into these steps. The first step is enticement, that he says, for sin, which is for us, obsessive thinking. That's the first step. We're starting to worry about something. A thought, an idea, something somebody said, something we read, a memory. And we're mulling it over like a sore tooth, right? That we're just poking at and prodding at and thinking about. Obsessive thinking that leads, conceives the emotion of fear. Because then we start to build up this anxiety, this fear about it. And then brings forth a destructive action or inaction. And it's important to recognize there's both. Destructive action and, and or inaction. So, Renee reminded me this morning. What, what are the main responses to fear? Fight, flight, right? But then there's actually two more. Freeze or fawn. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Now this is a basic process. A lot more, I'm sure, into it. And I'm not a psychologist. But the very first step that leads us to fear is the best place to stop. Obsessive thinking. That starting to worry and, and think over and dwell over and create all the negative outcomes and possibilities and consequences of whatever that thing is. That is the best place to stop. It's where the anxiety starts. This is a useful formula, I think. Simple, perhaps. It's useful because it can help us to start understanding what we're doing. So that we can then, when we find ourselves in those moments, because we've already mit admitted that we all have those moments. We already have those fears. But when we find ourselves at that moment, we're going to start to apply this process. So what comes next? Well, James's example is the best place, as I say, to intercept this cycle at the beginning. So just as with lust and desire, we need to have awareness, uh-oh, we're doing this. We're lusting or we're desiring. It's bringing forth that next stage here. What's going on? We need to stop and ask ourselves that question. Why are we being enticed to obsess over this thing, over this fear? And we ask ourselves some questions. Is the thing I'm obsessing over actually real? Is it real? Does it really exist? Or is it just something that we felt or presumed, assumed? Is there evidence that the thing that we are starting to worry about, that it really has happened in the past, or really will happen again in the future? Do you really have the evidence that this is real? It could be, well, you know, no, I just kind of have a feeling about this. So then you're worrying about a feeling about something that may not actually happen. Right? So we can start to deconstruct it. And remember what Will Smith said, the wisdom of Will Smith. Danger is real. Danger is something to be aware of. 
but we can worry or fear something that is real, some danger. For example, we may be worrying about a bill that is due tomorrow, right? That's real. Somebody's going to be calling for the money. That's a danger. It's a danger to our financial security, our credit score. We can be worried and, and fearful of, of that thing. So the answer would be, yes, that is real. But an example of something maybe less real is worrying about inexplicably falling into poverty, right? And being destitute on the street. That may not be real, and hopefully we'll never ever experience that. But you can see the difference, right? There's a risk of missing a bill. There's a risk that I, because I missed this tiny little bill, I'm out on my ear. That's not real. Is the thing that we're worrying about real? Is it really going to happen? And has it really ever happened before? Has it really? And we can't cheat. We can't use our previous fears to say that it happened before. Right? We actually have to go to what's real. I'm going to share with you one of my biggest reoccurring fears. And then you have to share with me now. But one of my biggest reoccurring fears, and if you know me well enough, it's probably like, well, that's no surprise, is being left out, being excluded, being left behind. And you might have a similar kind of feeling. And I suppose people in general don't like to be left out. But is it a debilitating fear for you? Maybe it's something else. Just a fear of being left behind, left out, excluded. So if this was to start happening to me, what should I do? Well, I should stop and ask myself, is this really real? Does the person have a history of excluding me? Does this person have a history of leaving me behind? Or are they more likely to just be forgetful and didn't remember to send the invitation? See how that works? It's really assessing what's real and what's happened in the past with that person and what might happen in the future. If it is real, then we have to ask, why are they excluding? Because it might be there's a very real reason that isn't personal. But if we just stop with, well, yeah, they really are excluding me, well, what are you going to do with that? Now you're going to fret and worry about that. You still haven't got to the truth of it. So instead of saying, well, I'm not good enough, they don't like me, that I'm not valuable, I might ask, or I might think, well, is it because I'm not needed on this project at work? Oh yeah, look at all the other people that have been invited to the meeting. It's clearly about this thing, and I have no specialty for that. I actually have nothing to contribute to that. Perhaps there's a limit on how many people can show up at the party. Or perhaps there's a limit on how much money somebody can spend at an event, and they just have to limit the number of people. Was it personal? No, it really wasn't. So we, we ask ourselves these kinds of questions. And then the big one, 
the one that I probably forget the most. Is there really anything you can do about it? Is there really anything you can do about it? Well, perhaps to this scenario we could ask, hey, uh, are you having a gathering at your house after church? Oh, yeah, 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 I forgot to tell you, I want you to come. Can you bring the wine? Oh, great, now I have to drink some. Now you're back to the bill question that you can't pay tomorrow. But it could be as simple as that, couldn't it? And you could very quickly get to a solution. Well, the response at work might be, wow, thanks for asking that, but actually we, we just need these people. It's a really quick project, and we know that you don't really need that. Oh, of course. Sure. Let me know if you need them. Now, would it make us feel better? I would imagine so. Would we still feel like, well, man, I wish I could have been a part of that? Possibly. We still may have been disappointed. But we would start to understand the truth of it, right? We would start to get to that truth. And the truth, no matter how difficult, I imagine is going to be much less consequential, right, than the fear we would cook up for ourselves that would keep us up at night. And even if it isn't, well, now you know, right? They just don't like me. And shocker, sometimes people just don't like each other, right? It happens. And that will be the last time you worry about it. Because you can worry yourself all night long on that one and then be done, right? Because you're never going to have to wonder about the next time you're not invited to something or the next time or the next time. Because you know why you're not being invited to it logical to me. I don't know if you get it. But these are pretty basic steps. And maybe sometimes in the middle of the night is not a good time to call us and say, why didn't you invite me to that thing at church? Man, it's 2.30. What's wrong with you? But I think you get the message, right? We need to ask ourselves these questions and check the reality of our fears. So what does it look like for you? probably have thought about one of your big fears, one of your reoccurring fears. What does it look like for you in there? Is there real evidence that the outcome that you're afraid of is going to happen? Has it really ever happened before? Is it likely to happen? And regardless of the answer, is there something you can do about it? Because maybe there is. You know, I mean, we have that scripture about if we have a problem with our brother or our sister in Christ, it's going to keep us up at night, folks. I know it because I've had it. I've done it myself. Somebody has hurt me, damaged me in some way, emotionally said something, and it completely, maybe accidentally, and I didn't deal with it. And that night, Matt gets zero sleep, so it's not worth it. I'm going to call you if you upset me the day off. Sorry. Because I need my sleep. But we have those examples, don't we? Do not let things lie down. Fester. Don't let the sun go down on, on, on your wrath. So it, we must, in this process, speak truth to these stages. We must ask ourselves the question. And if we don't catch it, if we don't start to worry about it, we don't catch it when we start to worry about it at the very beginning. 
Well, you know what it happens, right? It, it's a loop. So you start to worry about it, and then you start to think about it, and worry about it, and think about it, and it's just this cycle. So then, there's another opportunity to ask the questions and stop. The process for fears, real or imagined, is the same. The outcomes are not, perhaps. But we have in our Savior a perfect example of how to deal with fear. We don't think about it sometimes. But he experienced fear just like us. Debilitating, overwhelming, just soul-destroying fear. And we have that most famous of moments in the Garden of Eden, don't we? In the Garden of Gethsemane, I should say. In Matthew chapter 26, and verse 36. It says, And Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. So kind of a lesson one in there. You can only trust your friends so far, right? You can only lean on human friends so far. But it is interesting, he took a couple of the disciples with him. And that's something I think we can think about, is sharing with one another and, and confiding with one another and trust. And, yeah, maybe we might fall asleep on one another, but let's try not to. So we found them sleeping. Uh, where am I? What verse? 40. And then he came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and said to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And you know, it's easy for us to say, he was talking to Peter later about what he was going to do, but maybe he was talking to himself. He is enduring the start of the most difficult period of his entire life. And it is the culmination of his entire life. And I'm not too sure he wasn't speaking the word of God to aid himself. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed a third time, saying these words, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hours at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then over in Luke, same event, obviously, but a slightly different perspective. In Luke 22 and verse 41, he says, And as he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat came like great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
And when he rose up from prayer, he had come to his disciples and he had found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Jesus absolutely knows what debilitating fear is like. And it can be based on something real or imagined. And I think the thing about fear is it doesn't know the difference. That's why we have to ask ourselves those questions. He experienced it. He prayed through it. He came out the other side with an ability to endure what he was about to endure. To suffer. To carry all the weight of your sin and my sin. The whole world's sin. The whole world's suffering. The whole world's fears. He came out of this this fearful moment of his own, carrying all of that and carrying it forward to death on Calvary. Complete the work of salvation in spite of all terror. His fear was of something very real. But he still went through the process. I don't know if you noticed, but he's going through the same process that we talked about. He clearly had asked in the process of praying Is this thing, this fear that I have, is it real? Is it real? The thing that's going to happen, well, tonight and tomorrow, is it really going to happen? Yes, it is. Is there any other way? No, there is not. The answer was no. It is your cup to drink. There is no other way. You are the only Savior. What would that moment be like? To know that you are the only one that can do this. A very strong moment of fear. Clearly went through the process. Praying in the process. Luke's account also then says this though. It says that an angel appeared Anybody had that happen in the middle of the night with your fears? I wish it would. Right? I wish it would. And then he prayed with sweat like great drops of blood. It ties back, doesn't it, to the imagery of David just tearfully swimming in his, on his bed with all those fears. But then at the end, what did he do? He took the only action that he could take. He didn't didn't run away, did he? He did not take flight. He didn't fight. It was, what the scriptures say, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't fight, so his response for fear was not fight. He didn't run away didn't flee, didn't fly away. The shepherd was struck and the sheep were scattered. They all ran away. He didn't. He remained. He did not freeze. He didn't freeze. He spoke the words that he had been told to say. And he did not offer up a defense. He did not offer up a defense. Before his shearers, the scripture says he was done. 
except to give his name, Jesus the Christ, his title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and his mission to speak the truth. You notice in his discussion with, with Pilate, that's pretty much what he's saying. Almost name, rank, and serial number. He's not offering a defense because he had to die. He couldn't possibly offer a defense. What if he was successful? He could not fight. He could not take flight. He did not freeze. And he did not fawn. He did not try and engage Pilate and become his buddy so he could get out of this. He said he was here to bear witness to the truth. He did all the things that we just kind of talked about. And then took deliberate actions to finish his work and the mission that he had in front of us. There's another kind of interesting example. I know I'm going over time a little bit because you all stole my sermon time with the Bible studies. So. Um, it's really interesting. There's some data coming out um, from the COVID situation that we've had what, for a year now, which feels like longer. And some data is, is kind of pointing to uh, that fear may be playing a role in some of the deaths uh, and, and certainly some of the symptoms that also appear like COVID symptoms. Um, and there's some, uh, it's a really interesting graph, graphic that I can send to you later if, if, uh, if you want to know about that. It says fear, anxiety, and the lockdown have actually increased the mortality rate. Researchers at the University of Illinois School of Medicine report that the disruptive social and economic upheavals created by COVID-19 pandemic have led to an excess, excess deaths that are either directly or indirectly attributable to COVID-19. In other words, not just due to the virus. The CDC reported unexplained excess deaths from middle-aged adults in 2020 over the numbers of 2019. This increase was not directly traceable to the virus. One theory associates the excess deaths with dietary deficiencies caused by an increase in alcohol consumption, sugary foods, and caffeine. All of these deplete the body of vitamin B1, blocking its absorption. The deficiency is called beriberi, and many of the symptoms that seem unusual for a respiratory virus, such as nausea, diarrhea, heart palpitations, could be explained by the vitamin B1 deficiency, and not, in fact, from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Pretty interesting, isn't it? That the anxiety, the fear over the virus has a medical effect. There is strong evidence to suggest that fear has led that without the virus causing the conditions of fear, those individuals would be alive. And they may not have actually had the virus. That's the power of fear. And you know, that's just one part of it, right? Just take my experience from this last week, and not sleeping. And what does that do to our health? It can further compound issues that we may already be suffering from. So there's a greater truth 
that we have to realize, and it's not that we're going to eliminate fear in this. Uh, rather, it is that we're not going to eliminate fear in this lifetime. So, what does it mean for the scripture that we read at the beginning? I'll leave that to you to decide. But as Jesus said in John 16, 33. Uh, John 16, yeah, verse 33. These words I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We are going to have trouble. Real or imagined. And we're going to have fear as a result. But hopefully, we can do something about those fears. Hopefully, we can examine those fears and the thoughts that lead up to those fears and take the power of that fear away and do what Jesus did, prayerfully, prayerfully take those fears and take the deconstruction of those fears, asking those questions in prayer to God. And I think we'll find that we'll be able to handle our fears much better, that we may be able to overcome our fears with that perfect love. And perhaps part of this that we've missed in our, in our understanding is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting your care, your anxiety, your worries and fears upon him, for he cares for you. It's not a one-time event. But we have to remember each time to cast those fears. Like I said before, to deconstruct those fears. Ask ourselves those questions in prayer. And then lay them on God's lap. (laughs) Cast them. Throw them at him. Cast them on him. For he cares for us. We can only do that, though, if we follow the steps that we've talked about today. So that we can understand what we're casting upon it. So that we can understand what the cause of these fears are. And the last step, and the final step we have to take, is something we saw Jesus do. Is to deconstruct those fears in prayer. Asking the question, is this real? And then asking, what can we do about it?